Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Phil. This is a great show. Lots of good fights. Lots of great stuff to talk about, so I'm excited. Yeah, this ended up being a, a fuller episode in terms of like our notes and that sort of thing. We're going to try not to take up too much of your time, but uh, yeah, this is a, a pretty in- interesting uh, event, you know, Strike Force event to cover. So yeah, looking forward to jumping on this. I want to welcome everybody. Inside the Hexcon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And on the episode today, we are going to be discussing Strike. Force Rockhold versus Kennedy, which took place on July 14th, 2012 at the Rose Garden in Portland, Oregon. Uh, in the main event, Luke Rockhold would defend his middleweight title against top challenger Tim Kennedy. In the co-main event, the vacant welterweight title would be on the line as rising star Tyron Woodley and promotional newcomer Nate Marquardt would lock horns. In addition, the undefeated Lorenz Larkin would make his middleweight debut against the always dangerous, ruthless Robbie Lawler. And Hodger Gracie and Keith Jardine would look to rebound from recent stoppage losses in a fight against one another. Can I just say, can I just sure. say, Phil, that it took place in July, but I mean, it should have been Mother's Day with like all the moms on this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, which we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Okay. All right. But Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out our other, their other show, excuse me, at uh, out from the network at evergreenpodcast.com. I'm going to talk about the fallout from Barnett versus Cormier, which was the last Strikeforce event before this. As with Tate versus Rousey before it, Strikeforce had a new star in its hands in Daniel Cormier. He had upset upset Josh Barnett to win the Strikeforce Heavyweight Grand Prix in a, a just a dominant, dominant win. It was a decision win, but he bloodied up Josh, cut him up. I mean, it was a very dominant win for DC, and so we had a, a new star there. Uh, while it appeared that heavyweights were not in the future plans for the promotion, we would actually see DC back in Strike Force before it wrapped up its run. So we'll talk about that. We'd also seen Gilbert Melendez win a razor thin split decision over Josh Thompson to retain the lightweight belt, putting a somewhat controversial cap on their trilogy. And I want to mention, if you have not already, make sure you go back and listen to my interview with Gil and Josh. We walk through their trilogy of fights. Uh, there's a, a, a big surprise from Gil for Josh on that, that during that interview. And, uh, just a lot of laughs, a lot of really good, but also definitely you could you can sense the rivalry and these guys want to, uh, they're both up for, for grappling, you know, one another. And yeah, so it, it, make sure you check out that interview. You haven't already. And then Fajal Cavalcante getting back to the card had tapped out Mike Kyle in just over 30 seconds, which avenged a previous loss, but then he tested positive for a performance enhancer and had gotten his win overturned and his license suspended, which also likely cost himself a shot at the vacant light heavyweight belt and also ended his strike force career because by the time his suspension was up, the promotion was no more. So a lot of really notable things that happened on that card. Make sure you check out that episode if you have not already. So we're going to get to the event itself. Usually we kind of go into details of, you know, fight announcements and that sort of thing. But honestly, uh, in my research, there just wasn't really a whole lot out there. The card, you know, was put together and kind of stayed as it was. The, the event or the Rockhold Kennedy fight was supposed to happen earlier, but due to injury, uh, I think both of them suffered injuries. It got pushed back and got moved uh, to this card, but really not a whole lot else to mention. So let's get to the event itself. Unfortunately, this event drew worse than Barnett versus Cormier as there were only 4,186 fans in attendance. And get this, only 1,625 of those were paid. So if you they, that's what we call papering an event when you give away a bunch of tickets and the fact that they only drew, you know, 1600 paying fans to the event, you know, of course, you got another 3000 or uh, was that 2500 that came, but pretty bad, Josh. I mean, that, that well, that's 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 pretty sad. Well, what are they doing in Portland, Oregon? I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, not exactly like a. I mean, they'd been up to uh, to to like the the Washington. northwest before, yeah. yeah. But that was way early on. I think it was like oh seven. Like they hadn't been back there since then. They had, don't Bob have, Sapp, they had Bob Sapp. Yeah, on the that Bob card. right, the Bob Sapp card, right? That which was just a god awful card <laughs> in a god awful main event. Uh, and it's not like I mean, you have guys that are. Uh, I, I, I want to say Pat Healy was from the, the fought up there. If I, I think he was from the Northwest and he was on this card, but I mean, it's not like you had a bunch of, you know, there were no like team quest 
guys that were super visible. I mean, Matt, you know, no Matt Lindland, you know, no Chael Sonnen, like, you know, Dan Henderson's gone. Like there's, there just was so little representation from the Northwest on this card that at least from a large, you know, Hey, super well-known perspective, it, it just, yeah, kind of begs the question. It, I mean, but still two title fights, you know, Robbie Lawler, Hodger Gracie, Keith Jardine all on the card and still not drawn. Well, I mean, it, it's just a bad look for strike force, no matter where you, where you had the event. Yeah, so, that's, that's and, true. and, and we also mentioned, you know, the Barnett versus Cormier event was in San Jose. That is their home base. And they still didn't draw a whole lot better than this. So, yeah, it just things were really bad at this point. On the plus side, though, we should mention the Showtime broadcast, which had, again, Mauro Ranallo, Frank Shamrock, and Pat Militich, our favorite uh, threesome for the commentary booth on the call, drew a decent viewership of 420,000 viewers. So, I mean, it's pretty much in line with where they were at at this point. Not the worst, you know, but, but yeah, it just shows how far – Strike force had fallen at this point, but let's get to the undercard. Uh, at 170 pounds, Jason High defeated Nate Moore via submission, come by way of guillotine at 28 seconds of the first round. So a quick one there. At 170 pounds, Jordan Meehan defeated Tyler Stinson via unanimous decision. At 155 pounds, Jorge Masvidal defeated Justin Wilcox via split decision. Kind of crazy. I mean, obviously one of the biggest stars in MMA today, and he was coming off a main event title shot against Gilbert Melendez and now he's on a preliminary fight against frequent prelim fighter Justin Wilcox guy who I don't think ever made it to the main card on strike for or for strike force if he did it was maybe once yeah. so uh, kind of crazy to see how far Jorge Masvidal had fallen at this point I gotta say he does look better with the short hair than he does now <laughs> and uh just it's, it's the silverback Justin Wilcox. Yeah, yeah. yeah which I, and no disrespect to Justin Wilcox. <laughs> very good wrestler, a very solid fighter, but just kind of like, you know, you go from a title shot down to, you know, a guy that and you're fighting on the prelims of a, you know, a, a card with, you know, 14, 4,000 fans. And it's just, yeah, you know, how the mighty have fallen. Like I are said. You, are you telling me he didn't have a return match clause for Monday night? Is, uh, yeah. is that not how it works? <laughs> yeah, automatic, automatic rematch. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> they must have skipped over that part of the contract. All right, but 155 pounds, Ryan Couture defeated Joe Duarte via split decision. And then in the kind of main event of the undercard at 155 pounds, Pat Healy defeated Mizuto Hirota via unanimous decision. This gave Healy five consecutive wins. It seemed like Healy was next in line for a shot at Gilbert Melendez's lightweight title. That would actually end up being scheduled, but unfortunately uh, 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 the champ would just suffer a, a knee injury and Melendez had to pull out. And so Healy actually never got that shot at the, uh, at the lightweight belt. I believe he was also, then it was rescheduled for the very last strike force event. But once again, uh, the, the, the injury was too much for Melendez and he had to pull out and that was, that was it. So Healy kind of got screwed <laughs> due to injury and then strike force folding up, but he definitely was next in line to get that title shot. All right, this brings us to the main card. We got ruthless Robbie Lawler taking on the monsoon Lorenz Larkin at middleweight. Lawler, 19 and 8, had lost two of his last three, but was coming off a highlight reel finish of Adlin Agamov. Well, not a, which was very cool, by the way, flying knee and then followed up. Very, very, very slick. Uh, while not a title contender at this point, Lawler was obviously still a big name, still a big name today. You never know what Scott Coker would book if Ruthless got a big finish here. Uh, Larkin was 12 0 and 1 coming in. He was coming off what had been his first loss to King Mo. However, Mo had tested positive for a performance enhancer after the bout, which turned it into a no contest. So technically, he was still undefeated, and he was primed to get into the middleweight title picture with a win here. Uh, we mentioned this earlier, but this was Larkin's debut at 185 pounds. If you remember, Larkin had been asked about moving down in weight from light heavyweight but had resisted. However, once he was brutalized by King Mo and really thrown around, he finally had relented, was now in a better weight class. And in a pre-fight interview, Larkin had talked about giving up burgers, ice cream, chili, cheese fries, you know, quote-unquote, the good stuff, as he called it. Uh, yeah, so, you know, would it be worth it? But it, it's... You know, we've seen this, Josh, over and over in, in MMA that, uh, you know, guys want to be comfortable at a certain weight class. They don't want to cut a lot of weight. Weight cutting is by the, you know, testimony of many fighters, the worst part of the sport. Uh, you know, but you and I, Josh, had talked about it in that fight but with King Mo that he just looked soft physically. Yeah. And, yeah, he was very, very talented. But uh, if you're going to, you know, hey, you're going to treat your body, you're going to be a professional athlete. You need to treat your body like the body of a pro professional athlete. And that means giving up the good stuff and, you know, making sure you're cutting down weight. But uh, Larkin had started his fight camp at around 230 pounds. 
So there are questions about how much that would affect his performance. But I, I will say right off the bat, and Josh would love to get your thoughts. Larkin looks so much better in his frame, you know, with his body at 185 than he did at 205 pounds, in my opinion. Yeah, and I just want to say uh, Daniel Cormier never gave up the good stuff. No, I guess he gave yeah, up the I, good stuff. <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring that because I, I feel like Cormier, I feel like he could have i mean he looked good at 205 like he looked decent at 205 i just don't think he's always had the dad bod like i don't think he was ever he just i don't think he has the genetics to be a six-pack guy you know what i'm saying like that's obviously that's conjecture but but yeah larkin was not i i don't i don't know how bad i have no idea anything about cormier's diet but being that he was a wrestler for years and years i i had to cut weight i'm pretty sure that he he probably had a pretty good diet larkin well, well, just seemed well, to be laziness well a couple things there uh, real quickly, Cormier at 205 to me always looked like he was going to bust out of his rib cage. Like he just looked like he, like this guy just cut a lot of weight. But if you look into his diet and he's got some interviews out there, he talks about how he didn't have a salad until he was like in his twenties. Like he, that's like a thing Like he ate poorly. And it, I think it's one of the things with the weight cut that plagued him during his, um, Olympic, uh, run. Um, it's just, you know. He, he likes those kind of food. But I will say, to answer your question, that Larkin looked much more comfortable. He was much more natural, more fluid at this weight. Um, he did, You didn't look at him and think, uh-oh, this guy's chubby. He's not ready to fight. Um, that being said, he looked strong. He looked like he yeah. was that was he still looked stronger to me than Lawler. Lawler Lawler's more cut and Lawler's never looked out of shape uh, but but Larkin looked to me like he carried that weight well and uh yeah I mean how many fights have gone the way they shouldn't have because a guy started camp late or started to cut weight too late and just by the time they got into the fight they were done you know yeah. so it's great that they can fight closer to their natural weight yeah, and it's, I mean, but it's just crazy that he dropped essentially forty five pounds, you know, to during the course of the weight. I, again, that that's not in like one week. That's from the start of fight camp. So he must have gotten real serious for camp, and then you know, but but yeah, it seems like seems like it didn't affect him because he had a really good performance. But uh, you know, once the bell rang, really tentative start. Both fighters looking for openings, but not throwing very much. What they did throw didn't really land until Lawler did land a lead right. Uh, hook that seemed to hurt Larkin. He did the kind of the, the fish dance, the goofy legs, the jello legs. Uh, Lawler rushed in, but Larkin was able to weather the early storm and keep his wits about him. He was then able to get a slip, uh, a very slick trip takedown, drop some nice elbows from the top, so nice turnaround for the monsoon after getting hurt there. Lawler was able to scramble back up to his feet. However, Larkin was able to keep him at bay and land some really good strikes. Just really good action, uh, but things slowed down after this. Larkin clearly had the advantage of the open round. I gave it to him 10-9. <laughs> Yeah, I thought Lawler pushed the action in this round. I thought he controlled the round in that he was busy. He came out left-handed. It, it was the unorthodox stance, and I think it kind of flustered Larkin a little bit. Uh, I thought Lawler was was doing more of the... Uh, he wasn't really doing damage, but he was aggressive. Uh, eventually, though, Larkin took him down and just kind of laid on him and to the That's eye... True it looks as though he's winning because he's on top, right? He wasn't really doing a lot of damage, but he was in a dominant position. So it was a close round. Um, Lawler's best round. <laughs> yeah, oh, so. no question about that. Uh, but as we started the second, I, Josh, I don't know if you heard this, but the did you hear the lady doing the crazy, like, operatic calls from the crowd? Like, that? did you did, did that I mean, grab I, your attention? I, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I don't recall that. But then again, I was just watching the fight, so I might have missed that in between rounds. What was she doing? Was she Just uh, like, just as a, like, just this really <laughs> loud, random, like, operatic calls. And, like, I would hear the crowd kind of react to her doing that. And I just... I have no idea that what that was about, but it was really Let's get weird. her on the show. Let's find yeah, her. I, I, I want, I, I like, I thought about, man, I should Google this and see if, like, I've been, like, a chance. I it's didn't a even thing. bother, but maybe there's some Reddit thread out there or subreddit or something that, like, trying to identify who she was, but I, I don't understand that. And it was really weird and, and distracting. And I would have been frustrated if I was a fighter on that night. But, <laughs> anyways, Lawler slowed down a lot in the second round. He'd been so aggressive early on in the opening frame. But as we often saw from him in Strike Force, Ruthless could be really tentative and unwilling to pull the trigger. And it was costing him as Larkin was picking the former UFC fighter apart. And later in the round, Larkin went for a guillotine, which 
Lawler had had trouble with in the past, but he was able to escape pretty easily. Things were pretty quiet for most of the rest of the round, but with 20 seconds left, Larkin nicked, and that's really the best word I could use here, nicked Lawler with his knee on a high kick. That opened a, a just a really, really bloody cut on top of the head. This was a very bloody card. Like overall, this is a very bloody card, but mm-hmm. but it, this this cut in particular was not in a bad spot, but you definitely 10-9, 10-9 for, for Larkin for sure. Yeah, Lawler seemed to have lost his confidence a bit in this round. Uh, he came out really hot in the first round and was aggressive, but I didn't really feel like he had a real strong sense of urgency and wanting to get the KO. And as we know, when he throws his hands, he, more or less, he usually knocks people out. So I just I got the sense Larkin was just a bit stronger than Lawler, and uh, Lawler wasn't really doing enough. I was impressed with Lawler's ability to roll out of that guillotine yeah. twice. That I mean, was, was really a, like he just a very aggressively roll. He's like, no, nope, I'm not doing this again, and got out of it. It was that was yeah, that was good. Good demonstration, I think, for somebody learning how to counter that move, and he did it. Uh, and that knee, boy, wow, that w- that was a tough one. The replay was amazing, but he hit him high, high on the head, cut him open. It's a good thing he didn't hit him on the chin. I don't oh, know that yeah. he would have been able to stand up. Or much. or or over the eye, or you know, someplace where the blood would have just gone. But I mean, it definitely started flowing into his eye in the last round. But yeah. man, that it was, yeah. But Lawler, much more aggressive early on in the third. He was going for the kill. However, Larkin was able to neutralize him despite eating some really solid shots from Ruthless. Lawler slowed down. Larkin went back to picking his opponent apart. Just a really good performance from the newly minted middleweight. Uh, middleweight and and he, he, in my opinion, won a, a pretty clear-cut yet hard-fought decision. You could see Lawler frustrated. And when Lawler is frustrated, we've seen it uh, time and time again. He's just not his best self. No, he get, like the, the, the very famous Nick Diaz knockout where he got frustrated and like jumped in, which I think Militich mentioned on commentary and yeah. said that he's one of those guys that does not fight well angry and he gets caught. And I mean, I don't know how much I don't think that factored in here because obviously he didn't really get caught, but yeah. he just got outfought. So. Yeah, and it's hard to fight Larkin, who was backing up. He was coasting in the third round. Uh, he was playing defense. And for a guy like Lawler, who wants to just fight and have a slugfest, and they don't, at this stage of his career, Robbie didn't really have a whole lot of plan B as we would see him develop. Um, you could sort of see, oh, it's not going to be his, his night. Obviously, if they would have rematched. You know, 10 years, five years later, Lawler probably would have won the fight pretty easily. But on this day, Larkin did what he needed to do to win. Yeah, for sure. Uh, hopefully we don't have to do any, do any more fights with similar names like Larkin and Lawler because that just does not make it easy to do this. But uh, anyways, in the end, Lorenz Larkin defeated Robbie Lar- Lawler. See, already struggling again with it via unanimous decision. Uh, during the post-fight interview, Larkin got down on his knees and begged Dana White to grant Strikeforce fighters bonuses like they have in the UFC. UFC. Gotta say, if I'm Scott Coker and I'm cage side when you know one of my fighters is begging, Dan- I, I don't care who owns the company. <laughs> yeah. I'm the promoter. Like I'm, I'm not too happy about that. But uh, and it didn't happen anyway. So even more so. Uh, but this would be it for both fighters in Strikeforce. Lawler would return to the UFC the following February. Would have obviously an incredible run. Won the welterweight title in the process. I think he was like fighter of the year for 2014. I mean, just a really great run. He's 39 years old, still hammering away in the UFC. Holds a 29 and 15 record. Uh, he's coming off that uh, the 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 very weird TKO win over Nick Diaz uh, late last year. But yeah, should mention despite his penchant for fireworks, Lawler. I, Three and five record in strike force. So really not a great run with the promotion, uh, unfortunately. Interestingly, Larkin was scheduled three more times to fight for Strike Force and was actually supposed to get a title shot against Luke Rockhold. I you know, I want to point at Coker and say, you know, hey, oh yeah, crazy booking giving a guy a you know a, a a a title shot after one win, you know, in but he had given Keith Jardine a title shot <laughs> when he hadn't even fought at the weight class. So, you know, it's not like there was no precedent for it. And we also, I, I mean, I, I think Dana does a better job of not doing those types of, you know, uncredible fights. It's not a word, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think he does, does a better job, but we've all seen it with guys like Conor McGregor where he'll get, give guys, you know, big time fights and sometimes title fights because of the name value versus, 
you know, them, them earning it really in the cage, but Lorenz Larkin was not a huge name. So th- it, that just made no sense. Uh, injury scuttled that fight twice. Uh, then he was, uh, Larkin was supposed to fight Jacques on the final strike force card, but Larkin pulled out with an injury since the promotion folded. Larkin has had extended runs with the UFC and Bellator He's currently on a five fight winning streak in Bellator uh, and holds a 23 and seven record. The, I looked at the names of the guys and they're not huge names. So maybe that's why he's not in, you know, getting a title shot, but it's not too late. It could definitely still happen. Yeah, you know, I just want to say a couple of things. Lawler's run in Strikeforce was not great, but that's the story of Lawler. His second half of his career was like one of the best second halves you're going to see in MMA. He really figured, I think he switched teams and he just became an elite fighter for a while there. And that's, that's amazing. You don't see that usually, you know, he's, he's like a Matthew Stafford or something, you know, <laughs> spends all these years. And then all of a sudden he's like in the Super Bowl and Lawler spends all these years kind of being a mid Carter. Then all of a sudden he's champion in the UFC. So I think that's a testament of any athlete and any fighter's ability to grow and not just sort of say, this is my best. And who would have thought Larkin would still be fighting? Like he doesn't strike me as this like killer fighter who's going to have this long career but he's got 30 fights under his belt and you know he's still there and he's still competing and he's still making money he never got that bonus from dana white but he's lucky he still had a job vince mcmahon he pulled that he'd been fired the next day you know but um you know larkin's a he's a larkin's a legend you know he's never going to be the top of the sport but he's definitely a guy who paid his dues and had a good career yeah and and i'm looking at uh lawler's uh, his record right now. So his first fight in the UFC, back in the UFC after this, was the following February, which was the month after Strike Force folded. He gets the TKO win over Josh Koscheck, beats fellow Strike Force vet Bobby Volker with a big KO head kick and punch. Then he split decisions Royer McDonald, so three straight. Then he fights Johnny Hendricks for the uh, the vacant welterweight title. Uh, unanimous decision lost there. Then he goes on a tear, beats Jake Ellenberger, beats Matt Brown. And then, uh, and then he does get the split decision win over Johnny Hendricks to win the belt. Defends against Rory McDonald, TKOs him in a very memorable fight. Then beats Carlos Condit by split decision before finally losing the belt to fellow Strike Force vet uh, Tyron Woodley. But you know, you're talking three, uh, yeah, eight wins in nine fights. I mean that that was an incredible streak for a guy like Lawler who was coming off. You know, only three and five, uh, and then it's it hasn't gone as well since losing to Woodley. He beat Donald Cerrone via decision, and then lost four straight uh, before you know getting that very weird win, like we said, over Nick Diaz uh, in September of 2021, which is his. He only fought. He's only fought once. He fought once in 2020 and once in 2021. So he's definitely coming towards the end of his career. He's back up at middle middleweight at this point. So uh, you know he, he he's on the, the you know the end of his career, but. That streak of eight wins and nine fights and, you know, especially winning the the welterweight title and defending it twice. I mean, I, I just don't know that I would have ever seen that for him at this stage of his career, talking about, you know, where we're at in terms of 2012. Uh, you know, Robbie Lawler, I, I don't see him winning the the title. So pretty amazing, like you said, uh, turnaround and, and, and an incredible run. And, you know, one of the one of the legends of the sport for sure. And one, one thing, if you remember, Rory McDonald at that time was like the guy. He was right, supposed to right. be the guy. Right, he was the, the successor to GSP, you know, fellow yeah. Canadian. That, yeah, he was supposed to be the guy. And Lawler might have been the guy who just, did, you know, destroyed that myth. And, right. you know, of course, he never actually became that guy and then moved on to Bellator. And you'd have to say his career probably was a bit of a, of a disappointment for sure. And I'm going to say the Woodley knockout, was a fluke like that never happens again like Tywin Woodley never knocks Robbie Lawler out nine out of ten Lawler knocks him out so Lawler had a really good career to be proud of he's definitely a UFC Hall of Famer oh the best yeah thing about him best thing about him I mean maybe it's the worst thing too but he's just like a humble dude yeah like he just he doesn't want to be like the promotion the face of the promotion and market himself he doesn't trash talk he just likes to fight and even when he knocked out nick diaz he was like so kind and respectful even though nick diaz is a guy that for years had talked so much crap you know so um that's a good, another good part of, of lawler don't ever try to interview robbie lawler though he's not much for words yeah. at least back when i, I tried to reach out to him for this and, and never heard back from him but i and, and you you had mentioned that he was uh you know the the nick diaz thing that what the really amazing thing about that was it wasn't even just that he was respectful of him i mean he was 
literally like they I, I don't know if you've seen the video of them talking in the the cage afterwards but they somebody was able to get the audio enough to to translate it and you know put closed captioning on it but he, he's checking you know hey man how are you doing are you good and you know uh like keep keep you know keep pushing forward and and if i can help you in any way please let like this was not just like hey man much respect for our wars over the years this was like i genuinely care about this other person and you know that that's you don't see that you see the respect you see the you know the the bro hug and you know hey man yeah but to actually like literally be like hey man you good in life like how are not just here but how are you in life like that's pretty amazing and says a lot about Robbie Lawler you know as a as a man you know not just as a fighter so pretty cool yeah, cool all right, let's uh, jump to the next fight. Hodger Gracie versus Keith Jardine at 185 pounds. Gracie was 4-1 and one coming in and had lost his most recent fight in brutal fashion, going down in defeat via knockout at the hands of King Mo the previous September. Now he was back looking to right the ship. Jardine, for for his part, was 17-10-2 coming in, coming off a decision loss to Luke Rockhold in an inexplicable middleweight title fight uh, in January. He would likely provide another tough test for for the rising star here. But uh, Gracie had his uncle, Henzo Gracie, in his corner for this one. Pretty cool to see. Uh, he dropped down to middleweight from 205 pounds. I, I mean, he looked good in the fight. I thought at 6'4", 185 pounds, I thought he looked a little skinny. I thought I liked it. Actually, I liked how he looked more at 205. But if you can cut the weight, you know, usually it's that's usually a good idea. Uh, after some feeling out, Gracie got a trip takedown, landed in Jardine's half guard right where he wanted to be. Uh, Jardine had never been submitted in his 10 career losses, but that would be surely tested here against Gracie. He put up a really good fight, stalling and slowing the BJJ world champion. But eventually, Gracie was able to do some good damage with elbows and cut Jardine I, I mean, good God! Like, <laughs> I, I didn't, I, I didn't really have the words to describe what happened here. Like, just a nasty cut, uh, but definitely a ten nine round for for Gracie for sure. You know, all I could think about for most of the round was that nasty bump <laughs> on Roger Roger Gracie's back. Did oh, you notice yeah. this? Kind of, kind of, you kind of remind me of. Remember, Flair had like this, like this yeah. cyst on his. I mean, it wasn't as big as that, but right. yeah, I, de I definitely noticed that. And maybe, maybe if he was at two hundred five pounds, maybe it wouldn't have been there. You know, maybe you wouldn't have been able to see it. But yeah, yeah, it, it was just very distracting. And since he's a jujitsu guy, you know, all we, and he's on top. That's what we're looking at for most of the round. You know, just sort of his back. Um, he does look skinny. I, I've never really liked Grace watching him compete. He just looks out of place. I know he has the family name, but. Just just does not seem to me like his MMA was his sport. Uh, that being said, he had a good round. Um, obviously, um, Keith Jardine is tough, but I mean Gracie just has he just dominated him, and, and and it was really not it was not very competitive in this round. No, I think Jardine was a punching bag at this point. Uh, but he got taken down quickly in the second. Gracie was back in dominant position. Gracie reopened the cut on the left side of Jardine's forehead quickly, and once again, the Dinamine was just gushing blood. I mean, it was all over the place. Gracie was able to get Jardine's back and sink in the body triangle. Uh, the, honestly, I felt like this was getting kind of hard to watch just because there was so much blood. Uh, Jardine's blood was all over both fighters' bodies in the mat. I mean, it was just... The, each of their limbs, their faces. My kids actually came in when I was watching it and taking notes, and they're like... Oh, is he okay? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's fine. He'll be fine. But uh, you know, Gracie you, went for you, it. You said, oh, they know how to fall. It's yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And some idiot at home's gonna say, oh, they know how to fall. Um, <laughs> uh, good old Jr. Uh, but uh, Gracie goes for an arm triangle choke. Jardine's able to get out, and uh, honestly, the blood probably helped him <laughs> get out of it. But. I think this probably was a 10-8 round. Uh, Morrow asked about it on commentary. I, you know, basically asking. He always asked Pat and Frank, you know, how do you score it? And I, I really think Gracie could have gotten that. Just absolute pure dominance for for Gracie and and the ref should have really thought about stopping this fight. This was a crime scene. I mean, this was like Abdullah the Butcher, yeah. <laughs> Ric Flair in the Carolina. I mean, Seriously. it was so bloody. I mean, it, it would look like a pro wrestling blood scene where you're just watching that thinking, like, how do they let that go on? It's, like, ridiculous. And, um, obviously, I don't know anything about refereeing or what, like, you know, whether blood is ever a factor, but... I think you could have made a case for stopping that fight because this guy yeah. was just brutalized and there was no way he was really going to come back. Um, 
I don't recall seeing that much blood in an MMA fight. I mean, it was everywhere. And so uh, it was just a tough, tough round for uh, for Jardine, uh, for sure. And I agree with you. I, I was It was tough to watch. Yeah. Uh, but the the final round was contested all on the feet. Jardine landed a solid punch to his credit. He, he was able to stop a takedown for Gracie from Gracie for the first time, but just wasn't doing enough. Jardine needed a a, 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 a finish to win. I had noticed, by the way, that the woman with the op- operatic calls had like either left or gone quiet. So I thought maybe she was just like a big like Robbie Lawler or Lorenz Larkin fan, and she wanted to be there for her man in that first fight, and that was it. And then. I typed out the note that she was must have been gone, and then like here, there's another note for me. Never mind, she's back. So uh, I, I don't know what the deal was. I know I didn't hear her later in the 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 last two fights. So I, I just that'll just probably remain a mystery. Listeners, if you know, let me know. But uh, Gracie seemed to know that he had this fight in the bag. He he was breathing pretty hev- heavily, so he hung back, used a teep kick to keep Jardine at bay, coasted, drawing booze from the crowd. Probably. I'd probably still give him the final round. Uh, I'm sorry. I'd probably give Jardine the final round for being the aggressor, landing the punch. But uh, you know, the fight would go to to Gracie either 29-28 or 29-27. Uh, I guess we'd call it a victory that Jardine, despite being on his back so much and sustaining so much damage, survived to the final bell without being knocked out or the fight being stopped due to cuts or blood or submitted or anything like that. But yeah, just this was a bloodbath, man. I didn't really like this fight. It was odd. It was awkward. Weird stylistic matchup. Gracie uh, just kind of survived in the final round. It was a boring round. He knew he had won the first two rounds. Just didn't want to get knocked out. Um, I don't know. It was, it was a just not a fight that was like any, anything worth remembering. And the blood was actually, I wanted to wanted to forget it. You know, I was never a big fan of Hodger Gracie. I don't think he was an MMA fighter. Obviously he competed, but I just think he was a jiu-jitsu guy. Never liked his style. And I was glad that this fight was over when it was. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I'm always a fan of, of when I see a Gracie name, just because I'm old school traditionalist and, you know, watched, UFC in the nineties. And I, I just always would love to see the, the name continue. Gracie, uh, Hodger Gracie specifically has really successful gyms, uh, in, in England. He's actually based over in England and, and has a really like, he's done very, very well for him, for himself there. So, uh, but Gracie defeated Keith Jardine via unanimous decision. He did get one 10, eight round on, on the judges scorecards by the one, at least one of the judges scorecards. So, um, yeah, it was that, that they definitely saw the damage that was being done there. Uh, Gracie would be back one more time in strike force battling Anthony Smith on the final strike force card the following January. So I'm sorry, Josh, but you're going to have to sit through one more Hodger Gracie fight. Uh, <laughs> however, this would be it in both strike force and MMA for Keith Jardine. He would retire after this bout with a 17, 11 and two record, which included hey, big time fights, big name competitors, such as the Iceman Chuck Liddell, which is of course the signature win of, of, of uh, Jardine's career. Uh, Forrest Griffin, Vanderlei Silva, Quentin Rampage Jackson and others just very respectable for, for career uh, for the Dean of mean i know he's done some movies and tv and stuff like that since then not sure what he's up to today but uh, i actually tried to reach out to him too and i I couldn't find any uh, social media that he was on or responsive to or anything like that so my my guess is he's cast in some kind of serial killer role i mean he's got the look for it he's got the look for it no question about it yeah. All right. Well, this brings us to my favorite fight on this card. Tyron Woodley versus Nate, the great Marquardt for the vacant strike force welterweight title. Marquardt 31, 10 and two coming in was facing some cage rust as he hadn't fought in 14 months. Uh, he had been scheduled to fight Anthony Johnson in the UFC, but rumble had pulled out with an injury. Then Marquardt couldn't get cleared to fight Rick story due to testosterone replacement therapy, which was uh, not really something you hear about much today, but uh, at that point it was kind of new and you were seeing some older fighters, uh, get take it. I believe Dan Henderson, I believe Chael Sonnen were two of them. I believe uh, Vitor Belfort. Unfortunately, some of the guys that had taken it or were, were taking it um, or getting it, I guess is the right way to say it because it's not like you, you don't take it, you, you get it. But uh, some of those guys had, had either tested positive for steroids or – uh, you know, there had been question about that or whispers or whatever. So if you had a TRT exemption, you know, there was thought that you would, cause the idea is that if you take steroids that it eventually lowers your testosterone. So you need TRT to be able to get your testosterone levels back up. So you feel like training, you feel good, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, so th- there was some question about this, but a lot of fighters were doing it. Like I said, due to s- some miscommunication with the UFC, Marquardt ended up being released from the promotion. He signed with Bama, a UK promotion, 
but got out of his contract and ended up returning to the U.S. to to uh, to fight for Strike Force. So this there was a Marquardt went through a lot to get to this fight, uh, and then uh, you know former title, UFC middleweight title challenger, which I actually was there the night that he lost to Anderson Silva. That was in Sacramento, uh, the same card where Jeff Monson lost to I want to say Tim Sylvia, and that was I believe Matt Hughes. And uh, GSP, I think their second fight, I believe, was on that card. So I was there for that. So I'd been there when Marquardt had lost. Uh, he did have wins over named fighters like Eve Edwards, Jeremy Horn, Martin Campman, Damian Maya, and Husamar Pajaris during his career. So definitely a very, very respectable fighter. Uh, Woodley, for his part, undefeated at 10-0 and at this point. He had won all eight of his strike force fights. Uh, the talented wrestler, decision Tarek Safadine, Paul Daly, and Jordan Meehan in his last three bouts to earn this shot at gold. And Hey, this was his chance to, to really establish himself as a, a bona fide MMA superstar. But let's get to the fight itself. Woodley's mother, <laughs> loud and proud at cage side, proclaiming her son would be bringing the title back to, to St. Louis. Uh, just very loud. And they showed her on camera a lot during this fight. <laughs> just real quickly, um, she was amazing. <laughs> I mean, she was, she was like, you know, I'm just talking. They had the camera on her like 10 seconds, it seemed like. Um, you know, we saw a lot of Rhonda's mom on camera, but I don't really recall seeing a lot of moms, you know, over the years in any promotion. Uh, but she was definitely excited about her baby boy yeah. <laughs> fighting. Yeah. Um, you know, she's always been an advocate throughout his career. So I don't know. It, it was interesting to see that I could do without all of that, like, especially cause I just want to watch them compete. And then I get real sad if that guy loses. Cause I'm like, oh man, the mom's that rings at cage side, but um, it was noticeable for sure. You know, from a publicist perspective, as a storyteller, I, I like it when they do that because, I mean, they definitely can do it too much. I, you know, when Gina Carano was, uh, you know, they were gearing up for a fight. You remember the the card before? I mean, they showed her on camera a gazillion times. Like, it got awkward. Uh, so I'm not saying, like, you should always be showing other people. But when you show, like, the next contender, like, watching that fight, you show a family member. To me, you're helping tell the story. Like, you're humanizing the fighters. You're giving them more of a... You're humanizing them, and it makes them more interesting. It makes them more marketable. So I actually like that. Um, in this case, you know, yeah, they maybe had, maybe went to it too much, but I, I actually like that because, like I said, I think it. You know, I'm not going to repeat everything I just said, but yeah, I think it's a good thing to do that in the right amounts and at the right times. So just made me sad because when Woodley, well, well, we're going to talk yeah, about. We'll get there. We'll get there. All right. But I was just like, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> but that put it also puts more weight to it, though. You know, like it means more. So, but anyways, after a tentative start, Woodley loaded up and landed a right hand behind the ear, sending uh, Marquardt scrambling backwards. Woodley tried to connect with another right hand, but missed and instead went for a takedown, which Marquardt defended well. Marquardt then answered back for the shot he took, sticking Woodley with a right hand that staggered his undefeated opponent. The former UFC title challenger rushed in, hurting Woodley with more strikes. Uh, he was now bleeding from the face. Uh, you got to hand it to Woodley for staying upright. I mean, he showed a lot of heart. He was clearly still hurt. Trying, but he still tried to move and throw, but definitely 10-9 for Marquardt after the first first round, which was action-packed. It was a really good round. It's a good round. Woodley felt the right hand of experience. It woke him up, <laughs> there you right? Go. And, uh, you know, he took a shot, and he kind of, I think, grew up a little bit in that moment because he had to figure out a way to sort of like, am I going to stay in this fight or not? Um I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but I just felt like Mark Hart was too experienced in this round, and it made me think right away, like, uh-oh, maybe this isn't going to go the way that Strike Force thought it was going to go. It's not going to be the, rookie, the the young rising star beating the old-timer. It, it might go the other way. Yeah. The, the, you could, there were, I think there were a lot of things that were set in this, this round. And I think you touched on that, but got to mention Woodley's mom again, just so loud hearing side. It was distracting as I was watching the fight, but uh, great leg kicks from Marquardt in the second, giving Woodley something else to think about. He was just stalking him. And I really think Woodley was still hurt. He was just still, he was very tentative and seemed kind of off. Uh, then with about a minute left, Marquardt landed another straight right hand, then got a slick inside trip takedown, putting Woodley on his back easily. Another 10, nine round for Marquardt. Yeah, Mark Hart was just, he was too big. He was too strong. And Woodley seemed still hurt, just like you said. And he was backpedaling. So, yeah, Mark Hart was on a path here to win this fight. 
Yeah, and I mean, debut fight at 170 pounds. This is his first fight at that weight class. So, again, we go back to uh, Coker had no problem giving guys that had never fought in a certain weight class or had one fight in a certain weight class a title shot. So, yeah. Uh, but T. Wood finally seemed to, to like he had recovered at the start of the third, and he just came out guns blazing. He threw two one-two-three combos, pushing Marquardt back before landing a right hook that straight-up dropped the great. I mean, Woodley smelled blood, started dropping a mix of hammer fist elbows and punches. Marquardt tried for an armbar from the bottom, but Woodley was able to escape. Big, big comeback for T. Wood. Unfortunately for him, I think this was really the turning point in the fight because this all that activity without a finish seemed to have sapped Woodley. Uh, the ref stood them up for inactivity, which I actually kind of disagreed with. I, I, I thought they were still moving, but regardless, the former All-American wrestler just seemed tired. I, he had you know, I think he'd blown it all on that. He wasn't pressing anymore, and Marquardt was back to stalking him on the feet. Yeah, it's a classic rookie move. I know he's not a rookie, but he's young in his career. He just blew himself up. He went for the finish, and uh, he got tired. He got so tired trying to knock this guy out. I mean, I didn't count the punches, but he threw so many punches, and Marquardt was still there, and he put even a, a submission hold on him right, from the bottom. Right, trying to get the arm um, So he wasted it all. Marquardt survived. And, uh, you know, Woodley's obviously in great shape, but, you know, you're looking at the body does not tell you what kind of an athlete you are, especially in a fight, because you need that experience inside the hexagon, inside the cage to kind of know what that feels like when you actually burn yourself out in a real moment, not in the gym. And uh, Woodley was done. I mean, he was done. He was so tired. And I agree with you. I don't know why they stood him up. Um, there was still movement. There was still action. So I don't think that helped uh, Woodley at all. No, no. Make, yeah, making him get back up did not help. Uh, the issue I had with Marquardt, though, is that I felt like he was walking Woodley down but was, really wouldn't do much once he was – you know, in target, you know, in range. And and Woodley did so little after the first couple of minutes that I think Marquardt could have stolen the round if he'd done more, uh, although he did land a pretty brutal elbow right before the bell. But I'd still give it to Woodley 10-9, getting his first round on my scorecard. They showed uh, Woodley's mother on camera again in between rounds. The, this time on a slow-mo uh, this on a slow-mo replay, um, she was cheering her son on, so it wasn't live. But she was reacting to Woodley while he was winning, jumping, spinning around. And, um, you know, I, she's very deeply religious from all accounts. I'm pretty sure she was speaking in tongues while she was doing that. But <laughs> she's very, very, very excited. So, yeah. Uh, but – uh, Woodley, he was back to being tentative at the beginning of the fourth. I still think he was spent. When he did swing, he paid for it as Marquardt put together a beautiful three-piece combo that landed solidly. Uh, interestingly, he didn't follow up. I, I, you know, Maybe he was just being real patient, and, that, and it was smart, but Woodley was able to reset. But the, the as Taz might say, the mood was about to change. Uh, Marquardt landed another straight right pushing Woodley back up against the cage, and from there they clinched. Marquardt found separation. He threw this like an up elbow, basically like a left up elbow and then this downward right elbow. And uh, God, you could see T would like kind of like go into shock. So to speak, it's like he froze and then uh, just got another brutal right elbow. And then this left hand and then the right hand, uh, probably one of the stiffest right hand uppercuts in strike force history. Absolutely brutal. Woodley was done. What a welterweight and strike force debut for Nate, the great Marquardt. Mama Mia, as Rora Winello said. I mean, this fight was great because not only did we have this incredible knockout, but we got Mauro with the you know his classic yeah. line, yep. uh, which he reserves for those big uh, moments. So, uh, yeah, you said it perfectly. What a knockout! You know, Woodley was tired, and he paid for it. And when he got hit. I mean, he got hit three times, and he was on his way down the whole time. You know, it's just like first punch, he was going down, and they got bammed. Uh, it was it was bad, and Woodley took the loss hard. He mm -hmm. was crying later. I don't, I don't think he realized he had been knocked out. Um, and then when they told him, he's just in tears. Uh, so this was a bad, bad knockout for him. And uh, he would obviously go on and have a really good UFC career. But I think, you know, he... I, I would probably think in every fight he ever had from this point forward, he saw Nate Marquardt across yeah. that cage because this this was traumatizing. Yeah. Um, the official resort, uh, result, excuse me, Nate Marquardt defeated Tyron Woodley via KO, come by way of elbows and punches at 139 of the fourth round to become the strike force uh, welterweight champion. Uh, just, yeah, just a super, super memorable fight and one that will go down. I 
I mean, we we've obviously we've seen some good finishes in Strike Force. I, I feel like this is probably the most brutal one. It's the one that stands out in my mind as the most brutal finish in Strike Force history. I again, I could be wrong on that, but uh, it, it was pretty pretty nasty and and definitely top top three, you know. So, uh, but Mark, yeah, it's yeah, right up there with uh, Mel, Melvin with Lawler and Melvin yeah, Manhoff. that that would be yeah, that that would just because Manhoff like quivered. After yeah, he was that might there. be this might be one two on you know yeah. on, on that, but yeah, that that's a good good callback. I was racking my brain trying to think of other like create you know thinking about like Fedor finishing Brett Rogers or. Uh, but I, you know, some of the, like the hammer fist stuff that like, I remember the, I think the Mike Kyle lost to phase but, or Dan Henderson, when Dan Henderson knocked out, uh, Bobaloo, that was pretty gnarly. Like there, so there's definitely some big ones, but I don't I, like, as far as like a walk away knockout, you know, finish, like, I, I just, I feel like this might be the best one besides, you know, maybe that, that Lawler Manhoff one, but Anyways, um, which by the way, I, I know we don't we don't we don't talk current stuff all that much, but they uh, Bellator just announced Yoel Romero versus uh, Melvin Manhof. By the way, I don't know if you saw that, but oh really? Yeah, yeah that's gonna I, be both a good dudes one. are in their mid forties at this point. They're like forty four and forty five. I still would love to see that fight because I feel like someone's gonna get knocked out like brutally. So, um, but anyway, so Mark Court would be back to defend his newly won. Uh, title against Tarek Safadine on the final Strike Force card the following January. While this would be it for Tyron Woodley inside the Hexagon, he would, of course, have an extended run in the UFC, included defeating fellow Strike Force alum Robbie Lawler for the welterweight belt, which we discussed earlier. He would defend it four times, which is that is very, very impressive. They say you're not a real champion unless you actually defend the belt, which I don't agree with. I think you, hey, if you win, you beat the champ and you take the belt, like you're you're a champion. But there's really something to be said for. Uh, you know, for defending the belt and defending it four times, very impressive. Uh, he was it? Yeah, go ahead. Two of two of those were against Wonder Boy, right? Yeah, yeah. he. I. I. I'll, those fights were horrid. I'll, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm. I'm actually going to look up his. Uh, look One might have been a draw. He got a. Decision I think he got a draw. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he. So tech. Yes, yes. Okay. So he won. Won the. He won the belt against Lawler. In July of 2016, with a knockout, then he retained the belt. So it's not a defense, I guess. So it's three defenses and then a retention uh, for mm-hmm. a fight of the night, which he got fight of the night for that majority draw against uh, uh, Stephen Thompson, by the way. Uh, and then he did defeat him by majority decision. So very, very close fight to defend the title. Uh, beat Damian Maya by unanimous decision, and then actually got a finish uh, when he did the 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 Brabo choke or Bravo choke against Darren Till, and that was his last. Uh, not which, by the way, that was not only his last defense; that was actually his last win. And then he closed out his UFC career with four consecutive losses. Ironically, uh, submitted to a, a Bravo choke uh, in his very last fight, and then of course we've talked about Jake Paul and. All that. So, you know, uh, I, MMA record stands at uh, 19, seven and one boxing record stands at Oh, and two. Uh, so, but still, you know, one of the best athletes in welterweight history, obviously, you know, big time fighter and a name that's going to go down in history for sure. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the UFC hall of fame at some point. All right, but this brings us to our main event, uh, Luke Rockhold versus Tim Kennedy for the Strikeforce middleweight title. Rockhold was undefeated in Strikeforce at 8-0. He was 9-1 overall, had finished all of his opponents, save for Jacare Souza, who he had beaten to win the middleweight title. In fact, Rockhold had been so dominant, he'd beaten every opponent except Jacare in the first round. Uh, the AKA standout was a rising young star, but now would be faced with potentially his toughest test to date in Tim Kennedy, who had lost uh, since losing a decision to Jacare had cost him a chance at the vacant, uh, uh, vacant middleweight title. Excuse me. Kennedy 14 and three after 11 years in MMA had submitted Melvin Manhoff and then decisioned Robbie Lawler and strike force that got him another crack at the belt. The decorated military vet now had a, a second shot at strike force gold. He was looking to make the most of it. These two had actually originally been booked to fight in 2011, but Strikeforce had chosen to rebook Rockhold and give him a title shot against Jacare. Now these two would finally battle, and, and this time the title would be on the line. Big John McCarthy, the man in the middle, asked the competitors if they were ready. They said yes. The bell rang, and we were underway. 
heard my first Dusty Rhodes reference during an MMA event. I don't know if you caught this, uh, but uh, noted pro wrestling fan and commentator Mara Ronaldo mentioned that we wouldn't be seeing any bionic elbows in this one. So that 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 kind of popped me a little bit. That 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 made me laugh. Uh, what is the west? Of, what does the rest of the world think when they hear that? Oh, Just man. like Morrow being weird. Yeah, probably. You know, <laughs> yeah. who, who knows? But yeah. Uh, but the, or not even just the rest of the world. How about people that aren't wrestling fans? You know, even MMA fans are like, what is he talking about? Uh, but the the two traded a lot on the feet. Rockhold getting the better of the exchanges. Rockhold told Shamrock, Frank Shamrock, before the fight that Kennedy wouldn't be able to take him down, but that was not the case. We saw that happen several times during this fight. Kennedy got a great slam takedown. Rockhold was able to neutralize him and even got an Americana on, but Kennedy definitely scored with the takedown and control. I'd probably give him the first round 10-9. I'd have called the fight right away. Kennedy deserved to lose for wearing those boxer oh, briefs God, into yeah. the cage. I noticed. I, mean, the, I noticed those two, man. I was not a fan of those. I mean, I'm not like it's. I'm not trying to say anything about that. I'm just trying to make a joke. But it is distracting when that's not the gear that most of them wear. If they all wore that gear, we'd be used to it and it'd be fine. But it feel like Tim Kennedy was modeling out there instead of actually like you know putting on a pair of MMA trunks. Um, this fight, both of them had um, a lot of respect for each other. You could see that right away. Uh, and Kennedy is such a smart guy and such a smart fighter. He was playing that mental game. He was strong in his pursuit. I'm going to try to limit my sniper references as we talk about this fight. <laughs> uh, but he's very tactical. He's putting himself in a position to win these exchanges. Uh, close rounds. Okay, I don't know who won the round, but it was very close. Probably Kennedy. Yeah, it was definitely close. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Rockhold threw a, a right head kick early on in the second. Kennedy rushed him, uh, which allowed the champ to get the green braid to the ground and get his, get his back. This was a dangerous moment for the challenger as Rockhold had several wins via rear naked choke, but Kennedy was able to avoid, was able to get back to the feet. Once they were back up, Rockhold utilized his height and reach advantage to find a home for his strikes. Kennedy's best shot was on the mat, clearly, especially with Ken, with uh, Rockhold's height and reach advantage, but the champ was really doing some solid damage. 10-9 round for Rockhold. Kennedy was already slowing down in this round. I mean, he was trying for takedowns, uh, and Rockhold was getting better at defending them. And, Phil, I might be playing psychologist too much here, so stop me in my tracks if I am, but Kennedy just did not look happy in this fight. He looked like... Very uncomfortable, and he looks so much older than Rockhold, and I think he was only like five years older than him at the oh, time. Mil- the, t- the level of military experience that he had had, you know, at uh-huh. that point, that's going to age you, you know? Like, I, I don't know if yeah. you ever saw a movie with Jimmy Stewart before World War II, and then when he came back and did uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, but he had aged 10 years. Like, you should Google it. Like, there are pictures, side-by-side pictures of him before and after, and it's, it is astounding mm-hmm how much older he looks, you know, when he got back. So, uh, all, yeah. and then, you know, Rockhold's a surfer, dude. Like, you know, <laughs> not like literally legitimately a surfer guy. So like yeah. not exactly the most stressful, you know, life. So yeah, you could see why Rock or why Kennedy looks so much older than Rockhold. Yeah. Michael Bisping's promos on Rockhold's, um, you know, intellect are, are stuff of gold <laughs> yeah. out there. Yeah. But yeah, uh, uh, Kennedy just looks like such an old man, even though he his body was young and he is young by age. And that's what I kind of noticed was like Rockhold was like younger and crisper and Kennedy was just not able to keep up with him in this round. Yeah, it, it, I, I feel like I feel like Kennedy was realizing what was in front of him. And I think he was really having trouble with that reach. I, I really do. And he was smaller. He was shorter. You know, I just I think he was having a lot of trouble. But uh, in the third round, Rockhold was warned for grabbing the fence and then ate a shot to the cup, precipitating a short break for the both fighters. Once things restarted, Rockhold swung hard for the head, but Kennedy was able to duck and grab a body lock. The champ defended the takedown again. We were back to a neutral standing position. Good straight left to the jaw of Kennedy, who was scoring with some good leg kicks. Not a lot of combos being thrown. The commentary uh, pointed out there were just a lot of pot shots, not nothing really being set up, which really seemed to be playing Rockhold's game. As you mentioned earlier, Kennedy's best best shot was going to be on the mat. Uh, later in the round, Kennedy was able to get the, the champ to the mat again, even got the, the hooks in from the back. Rockhold did a really good job of defending and was, was able to get back to his feet, but really, really close round. I felt like Kennedy won that round, although I wouldn't have bet on it. So I had it 2-1 Kennedy after three, but it man, it's really, really hard to score these rounds. 
Yeah, they're really close because nobody is clearly doing damage to the other person. Kennedy was annoying me because he was trying to win the fight strategically, but he wasn't really fighting. And I think that in order to beat Luke Rockhold, granted, Luke Rockhold is pretty untouchable at this stage of his career, but you got to get in his face. I think Kennedy was overthinking it. Like you said, he may have been frustrated by the fact that Rockhold keeps such a good distance and he, he does these spinning back kicks, these spinning back fists. I mean, he's a threat with his legs, probably more so than his hands. Um, but I think Rockhold was, I mean, I think Tim Kennedy was overthinking it. When Michael Bisping fought Rockhold later, he wasn't thinking. He just went out there, got in his face. So, I don't know. I was frustrated. I also would like to know what you think about this, but I think Tim Kennedy just carries too much muscle um, inside the hexagon for being an MMA fighter. He just... He's so muscular. He almost looks like a bodybuilder. It's like no percentage of body fat. And I think it slows him down in some of these fights. I don't know. That's, do I mean, that's an interesting point. I, we've heard it on commentary for years that Boss Rutten, I think, was the first one to really talk about it. But that there are you know, guys like a, like a Ken Shamrock that carry a lot of like bodybuilding type muscle. That, you know, muscle needs oxygen. So the more that you're carrying, the you know, those guys are not going to be known for their cardio. I feel like Tim was, I, yeah, he probably could have slimmed a little bit. I feel like, man, maybe he could have even made 170 pounds. You know, like maybe maybe, maybe it would have been like cut cut a weight class because then he wouldn't have been so short, you know, in comparison to mo probably most of his component or his opponents. Guys like, you know, Tyron Woodley would be more his height, that sort of thing. But so maybe he could have cut some muscle to, to drop down a weight class, but he didn't really, he doesn't, he's not a bodybuilder type body. So I, 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 he's definitely thick and obviously does have big muscles, but yeah, I, I, I kind of, I think I disagree. And especially with all the cardio and everything, I, I, you know, I don't think he got tired here. I just feel like he just didn't have an answer for, for the length and the reach. So, but, you know, definitely somewhat, uh, subjective there, uh, Rockhold, you know, we mentioned not a lot of damage being done. He did have some coloring underneath his eyes as we started the fourth, but neither fighter was really sporting much physical damage. Uh, Rockhold was the aggressor here. Kennedy seemed to have little to offer on the feet in response. He was on the defensive. Clearly Rockhold wasn't doing much damage visibly, but he was definitely scoring with punches and kicks. And when he landed a right hook jab combo that put Kennedy on his back, he likely secured himself the fourth round. However, Kennedy was able to recover, get back to his feet. So, you know, big heart for him. Kennedy got a late takedown that Rockhold was able to reverse and he got the, and he got the, um, I think, I think Rockhold still got the round. I have it tied two to two, maybe three, one Rockhold heading into the, into the final. I, it just was really difficult to, to score these, these rounds. Yeah, I think Rockhold was probably up 3-1. Um, he was just never in trouble, right? Like, Kennedy never seemed like, hey, I'm winning this fight. I'm beating this guy. And, and Rockhold didn't appear tired. And he was damaging in the stand-up. Um, he was just more in control. And I think Kennedy kept trying to go for the wrestle takedown. He trying to win with by submission. He couldn't do it. And, and Rockhold was just too... too too much of everything for Kennedy uh, so far. Kennedy needed a finish going into the final round. Yeah, I, I, I mean to to you know you to be the man, you got to beat the man. Like you've got to you to win the belt, you need to really clearly win. So regardless of how close it was, uh, yeah, it, Kennedy really needed a finish to you know actually for sure win the belt of course so and shamrock and militich on commentary both agreed with that saying that he needed a finish to win so they both saw this as rockhold's fight uh rockhold was continuing to to win the battle on the feet landing solidly which forced kennedy to to go back to the takedown attempt and uh but it was actually rockhold that got it rockhold continued to score with strikes it was you know it, it uh, Kennedy was looking for a way to pull it out, but it just didn't seem to be in the cards for him. The crowd, regardless, was pleased with the action. Big roar of appreciation for both as the fight came to an end, but very much a grinding affair, like a fight, a battle of wills, just just a real fight. And wasn't flashy, not a lot of ton of you know, not a ton of highlights. I definitely enjoyed the Marquardt Woodley fight more, but it showed Rockhold is despite being the surfer dude, like he's very gritty and and can get get in there and get sweaty and get messed up and and you know tim kennedy that is his game and he showed his heart so good fight good respect between the two after the bout they shared a moment and you could tell that kennedy was frustrated but uh rockhold you know was talking to him in his ear and you know and was rockhold defeated tim kennedy via unanimous decision to retain the middleweight title 
Yeah, I mean, let me just say a little bit about here. Kennedy, you know, he's an American hero and he's a tougher guy than, you know, 99% of the people out there. But inside the hexagon, too many times, and even in the UFC, he's just too conservative with, with the risks that he takes. Uh, you know, you need to leave it all inside the cage. And that's a cliche, but too many times he did not do that. And he, he had to do it here. This was his chance. Um he didn't pull the trigger. Right? He just did it. Uh, he put himself in a position to shoot, but he never did it. Um, he's got a big heart, uh, but I don't know. Like I don't. What would you say was his signature MMA fight victory? You know where he came back from adversity. Uh, obviously, that Yoel Romero fight was very controversial, but um, he just didn't take the risk that he needed to win when he was when he when he was better than like a fighter like Trevor Prangley. Yes, he would submit him, but when he had to fight up a little bit, I just think he tried to win intellectually instead of uh, physically because he's such a great athlete. Um, so I was disappointed. I wanted to see him do a little bit more here. Uh, meanwhile, though, Rockhold's the rising star. He did what he had to do to win. He beat a tough Tim Kennedy. The fight was close. It was good. It was competitive. Um, and Rockhold showed that he was not like a um, just a guy who had put together a few wins, that he was going to be somebody to contend with in MMA. And, um, you know, there was a little bit too much of Rockhold's mom, too, as <laughs> yeah, far they, as I'm yeah, concerned. Yeah, saw a lot of her. But, it was, you know, it's the kind of fight you could watch over and over and learn something and see something new every time. It's that kind of, you know, five rounds of just yeah. like, wow, so much going on. Yeah, there. very cerebral, a lot of mental stuff. So, for sure. Uh, but Kennedy, we're going to wrap this up. But Kennedy coming off his, this tough loss will be back for the final Strike Force card. Had some very interesting comments leading up to that fight, talking about other fighters uh, kind of pretending to have injuries so they could pull out so they wouldn't be damaged for a future Strike Force fight. So we'll talk about more about that as we get closer. Uh, this would be it for Rockhold and Strike Force. However, as mentioned earlier, he would be scheduled twice to defend his belt against Lorenz Larkett, including on the final Strike Force card, but ended up having to pull out of both fights with a wrist injury. Uh, he went on to become one of five fighters to win gold in both Strike Force and the UFC. Still active today with a 16-5 and record, although, as you might have guessed, injuries have been a problem. Rockhold hasn't fought since two, July of 2020 to 2019. Uh, Josh, for, for $100,000, can you name the other four fighters that have won gold in both the Strike Force and the UFC? And I'll give you a quick hint. They're not all males. <laughs> Ronda Rousey, Daniel Cormier, uh, Tyron Woodley, and I don't know what the last one is. Uh, Misha Tate. Oh, yeah, that's right. Misha Tate. And, yeah. oh, you know what? As we're saying this, I may have just counted one more. Uh, so we said uh, Rockhold, Lar uh, not Larkin, Rockhold, um, Woodley, uh, Ronda Rousey, Daniel Cormier. Oh, yeah. So that's what. So I didn't count Cormier because he didn't win like like a weight class, oh, that, you know, like he won yeah. the tournament. So I didn't count him. So that's, but I think we can, I, you know, he won titles in both. Like that's a title. He had a belt, right? So, he gave him a belt that night? Yeah, yeah, he did. He got yeah. a, he got, got a very beautiful belt that night. So yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. So I'll, I'll say it's, he's one of six. Uh, the other one, Chris Cyborg. Huh, yeah, she won. Right. Remember she won Strike Force, Invicta, Bellator, and UFC uh, titles. Wow, that's, re that's really interesting. Um and by the way, just real quick, I know we, we got to wrap this up, but Luke Rockhold, he's got that AKA Kane Velasquez record, 16 and I, five. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, it's, it's, they're, they're very <laughs> parallel careers when you're like, these guys have been competing for as long as they have and only have that amount of fights, you know, injuries, man. And, and the AKA guys are known, you know, Josh Thompson had a lot of trouble with injuries. They have been known over the years for just sparring way too hard and guys getting injured because of it. So... Uh, but yeah, no, no fighters tested positive for performance enhancers or recreational drugs after this event, after dealing with, uh, King Mo and Feijiao on, on, you know, very recent cards, they were probably breathing a sigh of relief on that. Uh, no fighter payroll for this one. So we don't know any of the salaries. Uh, obviously the standout highlight was Nate Marquardt's destructive KO of, of Tyron Woodley, but we saw a little bit of everything except a successful submission, uh, on this card, really grinding fights, uh, uh, you know, a good card despite the smaller crowd, but Josh, what did you think? Think overall i was a good card i thought it was a good card um i remember it really clearly i was i remember looking forward to rockhold versus kennedy because i mean i thought rockhold was going to be like beat anderson silva one day he was just going to kind of take over the division i guess he's a little bit higher but you know i thought he was going to be the man in the ufc uh 
but it's still a good fight. The highlight, Nate Markhart <laughs> knocking out Tyrone Woodley, knocking out the young rising star. It showed that fights are won inside the hexagon, not on paper. Yep. And even though Woodley fell, probably fell, and the matchmakers felt like, hey, he's going to get a victory and get the rub off this UFC veteran, it didn't happen. And the uh, experience matters so much. And he went out there and he took it to Woodley. So to me, it was like this great lesson, too, in, in life. Um, so I thought it was a really good show, much better than the last few shows that we have seen. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, it was more strike force-ish having Rockhold, you know, main event. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, coming up next week, you will hear my interview with former Strikeforce welterweight champion Nate Marquardt. I've already recorded this interview, but the the great took the time to join me, and uh, we're going to go deep into his title win over Tyron Woodley. He only had two fights with the promotion, so there's not a, a ton to dive into as far as his run with, with Strikeforce. So we really go deep. We talk about his prep, you know, what it was like cutting to 170 pounds for the first uh, for the first time, the fight itself, what it felt like to land those brutal uppercuts and a little spoiler alert, uh, as brutal as that right hand was, uh, Nate claims that he actually was pulling, he actually pulled it. So, uh, cause he saw that Tyron was out. So, uh, you, you can kind of be the judge on that, but it's a really cool interview. We get into Mark Hort's philosophy. It's well known. He's a very uh, devout Christian. So uh, we talk about that. He shares a really nice story about meeting Tyron Woodley's mom after that fight. Uh, it's worth hearing. So make sure you check that out. That's going to be next week's uh, interview. Or I'm sorry, next week's episode. After that, we'll be covering Strikeforce Rousey versus Kaufman, which features a main event of Ronda Rousey putting her bantamweight belt on the line for the first time in a scrap with former champ Sarah Kaufman. We'd also see fights featuring Jacques Ray Souza, Anthony Smith, and Ovin St. Pro. Should be a good one. I'll mention that is the second to the last ever Strikeforce event. There are two more. Uh, there were two more events that were scheduled, but it would end up being canceled. Uh, and we'll cover those on the, the very last uh, event episode, basically. Um, and, and so that that's probably going to be a little bit of a supersized episode. But lots, you know, still not a lot left, but we still got a few episodes left here. I hope that you'll stay with us through those. Uh, if you want to hit me up, you can reach me at phil at insidethehexagon.com. Would love to hear from you as we wrap things up. But with that, we are going to wrap things up on this episode. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy, and we will see you soon. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.